Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, August 8th. The Alberta government exploring the idea of replacing the RCMP with a provincial police force. What are the advantages and disadvantages if it were to happen? We talked with Doug King, Professor of Justice Studies at Mount Royal University. Associate Minister of Status of Women Jackie Armstrong Hominyak has apologized for the third place winning essay in the Her Vision Inspires Essay Contest organized by the UCP government. It's been described as racist, sexist, misogynistic and transphobic. We talked about the concerning writing with NDP children's services critic and MLA for Edmonton White Mud, Racky Pancholi. How long will the sky-high inflation last and is there any relief in sight for Canadians? We pose those questions and more to Jean-Paul Lamb, Professor of Economics at the University of Waterloo and former Assistant Chief Economist and Principal Researcher at the Bank of Canada. And the annual Shaw Charity Classic Golf Tournament has wrapped up. We get some details on the success of this year's tournament from Chris Dornan, Media Director for the Shaw Charity Classic. The Alberta government exploring the idea of replacing the RCMP with a provincial police force. So what are the advantages and the disadvantages of replacing the Mounties? Joining us to talk about it is Doug King, Professor of Justice Studies at Mount Royal University. Good morning to you, Doug. Thanks so much for being with us. No problem. Thank you. Okay, so, I mean, why is the Alberta government even looking at the idea of a provincial police force when we have the RCMP here in Alberta? You know, I think that's a really good starting question. Um, I think the Alberta government uh, sees it as kind of fulfilling a, uh, a pledge that, that it made as it was being elected uh, several years ago. And you might recall that they instituted something called the Fair Deal Panel. And the establishment of a provincial a provincial police agency to replace the RCMP was uh, one of the recommendations. Now, the funny thing about that recommendation, the Fair Deal Panel, it was the 15th of the 16th, uh, 16 recommendation. And the majority of the people who participated in the Fair Deal Panel consultation didn't support the RCMP mm-hmm. removal. So it's a bit of a mystery. Uh, so... Uh, I think perhaps that's why it hasn't been pushed all that hard lately. Is it, you know, then is it because it just gets headlines or it gets people worked up and we like to do that in this province? Yeah, I, you know, I think, I think there's a, I think there's a, a you know, a, you know, an element of throwing meat to the, to the base mm-hmm. in it. Um, uh, it. You know, there's been, ever since the proposal was made and there was a several million dollar Study uh, done by uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, in it, and uh, since that report has come out, um, the rural municipalities have voted against replacing the RCMP. Um, there hasn't um, most of the indigenous communities in Alberta have said no. We want to keep the RCMP, or we want our own uh, police agency. So it's on shaky ground. I think would be the best way to put it. So from your academic perspective, what would be potential benefits of replacing the RCMP with an Alberta force? Yeah, you know, there are, uh, there is, there are some benefits. There's, there's no doubt in my mind. Uh, but the, uh, the negatives outweigh the benefits. The benefits are um, the, the government is proposing a much more um, uh, democratic governance model for policing. The RCMP is kind of in a silo. The public doesn't have much input into things the way it's run. Uh, there's kind of a hands-off approach as it relates to uh, government, although that's in question with the uh, 
inquiry that's going on down down east. Um, and the RCM and the government is proposing that there would be, you know, police boards set up in individual communities. That there would be a, an uh, Alberta Police Commission that would govern it. And that's that's very positive because I've been advocating this a long time. The policing has to become more uh, responsive to the needs of the community, and I think that's the positive that could could come out of a of a provincial police agency. Let's do the flip side then. Negatives of replacing the RCMP with an Alberta force. Yeah, you know, that's a, uh, um, there, I think there are two huge uh, question marks uh, on the table right now. Um, the proposal that was put out by Coopers was really uh, limited in terms of detail. What would it mean for the 107 detachments that are in place, the 220 uh, 2,200 uh, RCMP officers that are currently uh, serving Alberta. Uh, it, it was high, high, you know, uh, pitch at a very high level. There's very little detail, and you know, uh, we have to recognize that policing is an important feature of all communities. We need more detail. But will our services change? Don't tell us they're going to change for the better. Show us they're going to change for the mm-hmm. better. The other one is the big one is the money thing. Um, We currently spend in terms of provincial policing, including RCMP and sheriffs in Alberta, three quarters of a billion dollars, that's a B, a year, um, towards policing. And it sounds like a lot of money. Calgary Police Service budget, by comparison, is uh, half a billion dollars a year. So we spend a lot of money on policing. And the when it comes to provincial policing, the federal government pitches in 20%. So Albertans pay 80%, the federal government pays 20%. If we go to a provincial police agency, uh, the federal government will not pitch in 20%. Uh, the Albertans will have to pick it up. And so we will be spending about a billion dollars a year on provincial policing in Alberta. And that doesn't take into account transition costs, which are estimated about $400 million. And it is absent any costs related to recruiting of officers and, and training of officers and things like that. So um, there's a bill waiting to be paid, and the government hasn't talked about that yet. Thank you so much. Appreciate giving both sides of this. It's an interesting topic, not one that's going away anytime quickly, obviously. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. Great, thank you. Thank you. Doug King, Professor of Justice Studies at Mount Royal University. Associate Minister of Status of Women, Jackie Armstrong Hominiak, has apologized for the third place winning essay in the Her Vision Inspires Essay Contest organized by the UCP government. It's been described as racist, sexist, misogynistic, transphobic, and fascist by the NDP. And joining us to discuss is NDP Children's Services Critic and the MLA for Edmonton White Mud, Mud, Rocky Pancholi. Good morning to you, Rocky. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Sue. Thanks so much for having me on. I think it's really important that we keep talking about this, you know, and I've had multiple texts this morning of people saying, oh, well, maybe it was just a disgruntled employee, like people trying to find excuses for it. And I think that's kind of the sad commentary on the fact that we're trying to find a reason that this might be okay. Yeah, and I think that can be answered uh, quickly by the UCP if they wanted to, which is that, you know, I think Albertans are trying to understand 
who made this decision and how this happened and what it means uh, when the UCP would have ch chosen an essay like this to celebrate. Uh, and it, it would be pretty simple for the UCP to respond, but they're not doing so. And I think Albertans are right to still have questions about it. Yeah, I don't care what party you're from. I don't care what political stripe you are. Somebody needs to answer to this. Somebody needs to step up and say who was on this judging panel because it wasn't one disgruntled person. It was a panel of women. We don't know. Well, I'm assuming it was women because it's a women's contest, but we don't know even who was on the panel and if they were women because that is not being released as everybody tries to, you know, to back away from this issue. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. I think there's a shirking of accountability and transparency here. And I can assure you and your listeners that uh, none of the Alberta NDP MLAs were asked nor uh, were part of this panel. Um, so we do know it was, according to the contest rules, it was uh, a selection of UCP MLA, female MLAs who were part of this panel. But, you know, I think, Sue, like, you know, this, this issue, as shocking as it is, we have to kind of zoom out a little bit and think about this is a pattern of behavior from the UCP in terms of uh, not really taking accountability and answering uh, for, for mistakes they've made or, you know, decisions they've made. And this is really not what, uh, you know, Calgarians and Albertans want. You know, I've been spending a lot of time, our party's been spending a lot of time talking to folks on the doors in Calgary. And, you know, the things that are concerning them them are things like cost of living. How are they going to pay for the groceries? You know, how are they going to pay for gas? They're worried about access to health care. Uh, and for, for women, I mean, we're talking about a lot of areas, communities in our province right now that don't even have access to obstetrics care. These are the issues that Alberta families and communities are talking about. And really, we need a government that's going to take that seriously. Right now, this government is distracted once again um, with their own internal drama, and they're refusing to take accountability and transparency. And I think Albertans are frankly sick of it. I think, you know, it speaks to the UCP party. I think it also speaks to, you know, some of Albertans still and, and that the UCP government gave this any kind of oxygen at all, I think is pretty sad. What kind of a message does this send, do you think, to young women in our province? Yeah, and absolutely. So I'm a mother of two young kids, including mm -hmm. a daughter. And I'm, you know, I, I'm sickened by this, the language in that essay. But what I'm more concerned about is when elected officials uh, and people in, in positions of power, like politicians, uh, whether it be accidentally or intentionally, uh, give air to these kinds of views. It just emboldens those those people with those views. And I've, you know, even since yesterday, I've been experiencing it personally, getting a lot of um, hateful messages. Um, and because the people feel like they can express those openly, because the government has endorsed them, and in this case, actually granted an award to those views. And, you know, I am concerned, and it's beyond concern now, this is becoming quite dangerous, and it's sending the very wrong message, an opposite message, to young women in Alberta, but even people who might want to come to Alberta. We're, we're in a position, Catherine's trying to attract a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, talent and investment, and what message does this send um, out to the rest of the country um, and the world about uh, what views are endorsed and supported here in Alberta? Yeah, you know, I, I just, I find the whole thing is pretty sad and the text line continues to light up with people who are trying to make excuses because they support the UCP. And I think it doesn't matter what party you support, you can still support the UCP government and call them out just like if you support the NDP and a mistake is made, you need to call, we all need to call out when something like this happens and say, it is not acceptable, it's not okay, I may still support that party, but I will not tolerate that kind of thing being given oxygen. 
Yeah, and I agree. I mean, this is really about this should be a nonpartisan issue to denounce hate, yep. right? This is that's that's not a partisan issue. Um, and certainly, again, I think there are ways that the government can address this by providing some uh, accountability and, ex- and explaining what happened here. Because if it is the case right now that you know we're all speculating, how did this happen? Who picked this? Why did it show up on the website? And, uh, you know, if, if it is the case that this was intentional, I think Albertans have a right to know that as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. I don't think this one's going away anytime soon. <laughs> Thanks, Sue. I appreciate the time to talk to you. Thank you. Racky Pancholi is the NDP Children's Services critic and the MLA for Edmonton White Mud. How long will this sky-high inflation last, and is there any relief for us in sight? Joining us with some insight is Jean-Paul Lamb, who's a professor of economics at the University of Waterloo and former assistant chief economist and principal researcher at the Bank of Canada. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Inflation in Canada, the highest rate we've seen in decades. How exactly does Stats Canada measure inflation? Well, they measure inflation using what we call a basket of goods. Uh, So they survey establishments in Canada every month to show how the basket of goods, which is comprised of eight broad categories that Canadians buy every month, things like food, energy, transportation, shelter, etc. So every month the same basket is computed, the price of that basket, and they compute how that basket has changed this month compared to the same month the previous year to get the inflation rate. And why exactly has Canada's inflation rate been rising so significantly? I know we're not the only ones who are suffering through it, but can we blame it all on the pandemic? We can blame a lot of it on the pandemic, definitely. I think if you go back to simple uh, Econ 101 and you think of demand and supply, Uh, If you think on the supply side, we know the pandemic brought a lot of challenges in terms of supply constraints, uh, closures of economies, and also preventing labor from going to work, either through closures of economies or people being sick. So that affected significantly the supply of food, of energy, of uh, grow materials, and that pushed up prices. And... If you add on top of that the conflict in Russia and Ukraine, this has exacerbated all the food prices and energy prices. So there are definitely important challenges on the supply side, which are hopefully abating, but there are still significant challenges on that side. And then you had very strong demand as well on the part of consumers and firms. Remember during the pandemic, uh, our government and many governments around the world They conducted several rounds of fiscal stimulus Mm -hmm. to help uh, individual consumers, families, and also businesses so that we we did not see many closures and job losses during the pandemic. So a lot of people received a lot of cash and uh, demand for goods, especially for goods during the pandemic, since we were not able to spend a lot on services, was exceptionally strong, and that combination of very strong demand with constrained supply uh, led to record levels in prices around the world. I think one thing uh, to to note is that we still think that these supply challenges will eventually uh, correct itself so that we go back to 
some sort of normalcy when it comes to the supply of goods. It was such a uh, catch-22, wasn't it? Who's hit hardest when inflation is this high, or is it equal for all of us? It's definitely not equal for all of us. The consumers and families at the lower income group tend to be hit the, the hardest because they spend a higher proportion of their income on food, energy, and transportation. And these are some of the, of the elements in, of inflation that have been increasing at the highest rate. And people at the lower end of the income group have less ways of protecting themselves from inflation. So inflation affects disproportionately the uh, consumers and families at the lower end. Obviously, inflation affects everyone because it's a general increase in, in prices and we all buy goods and services in the economy. But unfortunately, if inflation goes on, the cost is borne disproportionately by these lower income bracket uh, families. Those who are at least able to take the hit, right? It's, it's a shame that, it, that that's the way it happens. So, you know, how do we get out of it? And do you have a sort of an inflation forecast that will get you to look in your crystal ball for us? Well, as you know, economists are notoriously bad at making forecasts. <laughs> but a couple of things we know what's happening. The Bank of Canada, as you know, have, has been increasing interest rate uh, significantly over the last year. And this has translated into increases in other interest rates in the economy. So this will help dampen demand and bring demand back to supply and ease inflation as we go forward. And also, more importantly, I think this will reassure businesses and consumers so that inflation expectations, which are an important element of inflation, uh, remain close to the target of 2% of of the Bank of Canada. So that's one thing that I think the Bank of Canada and other central banks are doing, raising interest rate to, to bring demand back to supply. This will help. Unfortunately, we know that when the Bank of Canada or other central banks raise interest rate, it takes time for these interest rate to work through the economy. Typically, we think of uh, anywhere between 16 to 24 months. So we should see inflation start easing by hopefully the end of the year, but we won't see uh, inflation going back all the way back to 2%, which is the target of the Bank of Canada until 2024. So we, we should we should see some relief at, uh, for people at the grocery, at uh, the gas station, but it will take time before we go back to what we've seen and been accustomed to, which is low and stable inflation around 2%. I hear a lot of experts saying, you know, we need a recession to correct all of this and that it is inevitable. Do you believe that? And, and why does a recession to help curb inflation? We definitely don't need a recession to curb inflation. What we need is we need to decrease demand so that demand goes back to where supply is. And that can be done with what we call a soft landing, and this is exactly what the Bank of Canada is trying to achieve. Slow down the economy without creating a recession. That's definitely not easy because these increases in interest rate have uh, a lot of uncertainty when it comes to how much it will affect demand in the end. So we may end up in a, in a recession in, in the end because of all the increases in the interest rate, but that's not a given. I think what we need, definitely what we need, I think we all agree on that as economists, is a slowdown in aggregate demand so that inflation eases. 
But if we can avoid a recession, that would be great because the cost of recessions, as you know, um, are also significant because we have people losing their jobs, etc. So if we can avoid a recession, slow down the economy by bringing inflation, this is exactly what we, we are hoping for. Are, are we able and are we taking the lessons learned from what happened in the 70s and the 80s and, and putting it towards today? We have learned a lot it, since the 1970s. We still don't have great models of inflation or, or models that can predict the economy very well. There's still quite a lot of work to be done there. But I think what we understood uh, and much more how inflation works the factors affecting inflation, especially uh, inflation, have the role of inflation expectations and how inflation expectations can drive inflation, but also make inflation sticky in the sense that once inflation increases, if inflation expectations also increase at the same time, it can make inflation become entrenched. This is something we did not understand in the 1970s. We now understand very, very well. And this is why you see central banks making a lot of speeches, uh, reassuring Canadians, the Bank of Canada governor reassuring Canadians that the Bank of Canada is doing everything they can to get inflation back to their target of 2%, because we want Canadians to believe and have expectations that inflation will be at 2% in the next, say, two years, so that inflation doesn't get out of hand. Great information. Thanks so much for your time this morning. You're welcome. Thank you. That is Jean-Paul Lamb, who is a professor of economics at the University of Waterloo. The annual Shaw Charity Classic Golf Tournament has wrapped up for this year, and this morning we're getting details on the success of this year's tournament from Chris Dornan, media director for the Shaw Charity Classic. Hi, Chris. Good morning. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so our producer, Reese wrote this question. I have to use it. Was <laughs> this year's tournament a hole-in-one, Chris? Oh, uh, <laughs> boom, right? Yeah, for sure it was. You know, and actually, to kick things off, Freddie Couples got a hole-in-one in the Pro-Am on, uh, on Thursday. Wow. So it was, <laughs> it was pretty awesome. You know, I think uh, for us, we obviously, just like every other um, event or business in the city, we had, a, you know, a couple of, of tough years and Last year, we, we were able to just get an event underway with restrictions, heavy restrictions in place in terms of crowd capacity. But this year, you know, we came back in, in droves and we showed the world sort of what Calgary is known for. And that's, you know, for sure volunteer spirit, but but it was, you know, huge crowds lining the fairways. We had um, just under 47,000 people come through the gates throughout the week, which is pretty close to a record, if, if not record numbers. Um, it matched our first year where... You know, we we came we came out uh, guns a blazing there with with huge crowds and you know the food and beverage sales were quite significant. Mother Nature, you know, delivered a gift to us where we had you know really mm-hmm. awesome temperatures and sun shining all week. So you know it was a huge win and uh, you know I, I we we had a great finish, a playoff finish there with John Houston and Jerry Kelly. But you know the huge winners will be will be the youth-based charities here in the province. And we'll, we'll uh, start tallying up our, our numbers in the fall um, for how much, uh, what our charitable gift will be this year. Um, we still have a few more weeks to to be able to donate um, to some of the, the 260 charities tied to the tournament until um, the end of August. And 
we'll add up those numbers and that that really is the mission is is raising big numbers uh for for youth big charities you know i was going to say that because it's a great tournament for sure but for those who might oh i'm not interested in golf so i'm not interested maybe don't understand that you know the second word in it is the shaw charity classic charity being really the key so tell us you know a little bit about the tournament itself for those who who might not know and maybe we'll find a little more interest in it next year and the years after yeah you know i i think like this was our 10th year and i I think what I um, respect so much about this event is just that it's held true to its mission. And, you know, the late Clay Riddell and, and J.R. Shaw, they, they shared a vision of this event to bring, you know, a world-class professional sporting event in Calgary. But the bigger mission was to, to leverage that event to raise money for children in need across the province. And, you know, our our first year, I think we raised around $2 million for, for charity, which you know, caught <laughs> caught the PGA Tour champion uh, world by attention, how much money we raised in that year. But quickly after, we smashed those totals. And um, Canadians, quite honestly, from coast to coast, have contributed um, to donating. And our numbers each year are 10, 12, 14 million dollars mm. um, through very through our, our fundraising uh, charitable arm. And so, you know, we've we've never wavered in that. That's every decision that's made. Um, between now and next year's event, it's all about will it contribute to fundraising for for the charities that are in need. And, you know, these charities are in greater need than ever before coming out of the pandemic. And that's what I think is so great about this event is, is being able to hold true to that mission. 100%. Thanks so much for the update. We'll wait for the numbers a little later on, but I uh, always appreciate talking to you. You guys do a great job with the Shaw Charity Classic. Thank you, Sue. Thanks for the support. Thanks, Chris. Chris Dornan, Media Director for the Shaw Charity Classic.